0: Hi everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is Jay David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessom. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Very well, David. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you. Do anything fun?
1: Uh, no, I've been just pretty much uh, working heavily. But uh, I did a few. I did one art project with kind of a rebirth, uh, resurrection theme. Part of my series of imitating uh, the great uh, Paleolithic cave art. Pieces, uh, which I know you're a fan of too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are just you know the beginning of culture with a capital C on so many levels. Uh, I just I'm I'm so daunted by what those lost artists of the past were be, you know able to create, and the fact that that it, it very clearly is uh, a moment of where where magic and art were, were literally the same process, mm-hmm. the same worldview, the same mindset, which I think kind of uh, relates to, to so much of what we've been talking about on the show. Um, and I think, you know, obviously before, long before any uh, formal religious ideas of rebirth or reincarnation came along, that uh, the sense of these lost people of the past inventing a notion of culture as a form of magic to transcend time and nothing says transcendence of time better than the cave paintings Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of a cool larger Easter thing free of uh, the Christian tradition uh, free of even the pagan tradition you know well before all of that there was this idea of kind of being able to uh, somehow give birth to ourselves continuously through Mm -hmm. the mechanisms of art and magic
0: that's interesting, and it does seem that the cave paintings in particular, that was the birth of a sort of self-created mystery in a way. We kind of began, that the first cave painting was kind of the first real question, I guess, in a lot of ways. That's
1: a beautiful way to put it. I think that's, uh, it's a very, you know, it really does, it gets to the heart of all human questions. Um, the The appearance versus reality, you know, for the first time people were asking about, well, is you know, all the, all the way things look, the way things really are, uh, abstraction, representation, repeatability, perspective, you know, we've talked about perspectivism, so much as in, you know, one antelope on a wall, and particularly when the antelope is combined with some strange horned dream creature, you know, mm-hmm. that could never have existed, and yet did, you know, did and does still exist. Right. Excitingly. Um, yeah. First yeah. question, I, I, th- those, that's exactly the way I think of uh, those still very living but ghostly figures uh, in all our pasts. That's part of a world legacy. Nobody owns the, the right to the legacy of those people. It belongs to everyone. Uh, that's what they were. They were the first questioners.
0: They were. And uh, because I've been thinking about this a lot with regards to writing in general, and I think that writing is often conceived of as a creation, as finding answers for things, right? And I was thinking about it, I was like, no, writing is more, it's more along the lines of finding new and interesting uh, mysteries. There's a, a great quote from a guy, uh, bio who Lafe, who uh, is just a really interesting thinker in terms of reconstructing the narratives that we have for our, our present moment. And he talks about uh, art rather than than answering questions. This, he says the, the bewilderment, the bewilderment sets it free from the cage of reason, right? And the idea of being mystified and being confused as the sole function, of the artwork uh really unlocked a lot of a lot of stuff for me in my mind but
1: uh, i couldn't agree with that more that's something i'm really stressing in uh, the rutledge press textbook it's something i stress in my teaching i think that that shift in in paradigm, from having the right answer, having the right answer, you know, which paralyzes students and, and everyone, you know, it, it establishes self-esteem problems, and it just creates such a terrible idea of what education and the possibilities of imaginative life are, that it should really be about, uh, you know, answering ever more interest or raising ever more interesting questions, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, absolutely. And, and answering them would be nice, maybe, if, But then those always seem to lead to more interesting riddles, you know?
0: The answers are never that interesting. Think of every great work of detective fiction, even something like Chinatown, which has a phenomenal ending. It's a little bit of a letdown when you get down to it because you like being in the mystery. That's what people don't understand about pulp fiction and detective fiction and hard-boiled fiction in general is that it's not about finding out that the conspiracy goes all the way to the top— and you know everything's controlled by these puppet masters the joy is in the snooping in the Mm -hmm. in trying to find out what's going on but we are um we're going to raise a lot of questions today i think but before we get into that i'd like to do my weekly call to action thanks everybody for participating so far uh it's been really great we continue to grow it's all good i feel like a broken record i'm really sorry if people are tired of hearing this but it's important you know it's important to let everyone know that your efforts are uh, well appreciated and that they're actually working if you enjoy this show i would appreciate it if you could show it to your friends on social media show it to a friend in real life you know Um, print out our logo and post it on a telephone pole somewhere i don't know Uh, if you are following this on the jdo show What I'm going to do, because I I do want people to shift over to the No Country uh, uh, official feed, is that I'm actually going to only be featuring the first half of the episode on the JDO show from now on, and then the rest of the show is over here, because I just kind of want to get everybody corralled into one space. But that about does it for the housekeeping end. Um, send your thoughts, concerns, what have you, to the thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com, which of course will be in the show notes, which are clickable. But on that note, did you have anything you wanted to add there, Chris?
1: Uh, just a couple of pickups. Um, I wanted to acknowledge uh, uh, my friend Jim Earp, who is a loyal listener. Uh, he's been following... Uh, and he, he mentioned um, the C.S. Lewis book, The Abolition of Man, which he loaned to me. I think people would know Lewis primarily maybe because of his fantasy. He was a colleague of Tolkien uh, as part of the Inklings group at Oxford. He's famous, of course, for the Narnia books and and uh, quite a few other interesting... He's a very interesting fantasy writer, I think. But he was also a Christian apologist. And The Abolition of Man is one of those... Uh, fairly rare books that I think um, crosses over from uh, its religious credentials into a humanist perspective that I think is is relevant. So I was grateful to have that mentioned. Um, Jim, also uh, picking up on our Headless episode earlier, reminded me of of Robin Williams' wonderful portrayal of the King of the Moon in the movie Baron Munchausen by Terry Gilliam who's a director I really like and who at one point was uh, looking at my first novel, Zanesville. I I wish that had come to pass. Um, But then one other thing that that came to my attention or just I was reminded about in terms of our, when we started off looking at this, the myths of progress, uh, we were talking about it from a mythic and religious angle very directly. And there are, of course, three great works of of literature in the Western canon that deal specifically with a kind of journey. Uh, The Divine Comedy by Dante, of course, Paradise Lost, Milton's great epic poem, and The Pilgrim's Progress by uh, by Bunyan, um, where we move from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Uh, This idea of progress being uh, a pilgrimage, you know, is is a really crucial idea, and uh, to go to one of our uh, mutual heroes, David, you know, uh, Rupert Sheldrake talks about. He he is a, a very open Christian, uh, and he talks about the the importance of of pilgrimage, and he has taken his son to uh, some of the great cathedrals in England uh, as part of a kind of you know, personal family mm-hmm. uh, journey. And I think that's interesting to look at that in very practical terms, that it, it you can certainly uh, supply more meaning to that if you, the more, uh, de- you know, deistically you're inclined. But just historically, and in terms of a kind of family and personal goal, I mean, I think the pilgrimage idea, a road trip, you know, a road trip, is that's a secular pilgrimage, right? Mm-hmm. And and what could be more pop culture than, than road trips? So just to reinforce that earlier sort of aspect of, of progress as a journey, because um, we're, we're going to be looking still at the idea of progress across a couple of other major areas of culture. Um, I think that's a good place to sort of get rolling is to think of it very much in terms of A journey, um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is a little bit more dimensional than just a linear, uh, you know, an arrow shot into the air. Uh, It's a little bit more uh, textured, I think, in terms of real life and real human experience. So that's my background message. Um, And then I have some thoughts on where we might uh, uh, head this episode.
0: Excellent. I would also you mentioning C.S. Lewis. I wouldn't be able to continue without mentioning my personal favorite, which is the Screw Tape Letters. Um, yes, I think absolutely. that's a great book of Christian apologetics. It's about a, a a demon, an old mentor demon, who's writing letters to his protege, who is attempting as as well as he can to corrupt a man's soul. And it's this great device because the demon puts forth all of these different temptations that the protege can offer to the man, and he gets increasingly frustrated as the man becomes uh, more and more Christian. Um, it's it's very quick. It's a very quick read, uh, but I also think it has a lot of great life advice, and it's just a lot of fun to read. And on the note of the, of the journey, again, kind of as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, the destination is never... As interesting as you think it's going to be, <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Yeah. When you, once it's true. you once you've named something, it's already dead, as somebody said. I'm not sure who said that, but it's the searching and the looking and the fumbling around in the dark. That's where things get really interesting. It's the rabbit holes that you that you go down. It reminds me of a family taking a road trip. I'm I'm sure this was in a cartoon or a movie or something but, you know, they're driving down the road and they see these billboards for, you know, the thing, right? And there are these evil eyes on the billboard. And as they pass, they they realize that going to see the thing is going to take them, you know, a hundred miles out of the way. They're going to miss, you know, the, the scenic sunset at the Grand Canyon. And the kids are yelling in the backseat that they want to see the thing. They want to see the thing. And they finally get to the destination. And, and the thing is, it's like a, fish tank full of sea monkeys or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And um so, you know, at the end of it, we might find a fish tank full of sea monkeys, but that's an that's also an interesting digression in its own way. It's being able to pivot on your feet and realize that every ending that you think you're getting to is actually just another stop on the way, right? But on that note, Chris, what are we going to talk about today?
1: Okay. Well, we, we began this series looking at five different streams of the idea of, of progress. Mm-hmm. The first we looked at was the mythic religious angle. And then we looked at the biological angle, which is, of course, most uh, clearly put forward in uh, the theory of evolution, um, which involves uh, Darwin, Wallace, and Lamarck's earlier work. It, it's quite... A, there's actually a lot of history to uh, how the theory of evolution is developed and a lot of interesting problems with it still, even if those aren't necessarily known to the general public. But then the third level is the technological, uh, which is where we said a lot of people, that's their notion of progress. I think if you ask my students, that might be one of the key things, and they would contrast that with uh, progress in a social sense, which David, you started us off uh, looking at your definition of progress and it really had to do with social justice issues of women's rights, civil rights, mm-hmm. uh, equity, mm-hmm. you know, the kinds of, of you know, diversity and inclusion uh, topics that, that we're hearing a lot of in the media today. I, I would like to start by putting forward um, a, a juxtaposition and a binary, and a fundamental conflict, which I think is particularly characteristic of American society and American history. Um, And it ties into a class that I've developed and have taught at a a few universities now, which I nickname, blame it on the Space Needle, Visions Mm -hmm. of the Future. And the thesis is that Americans' idea of progress is torn between the technological engineering inventions, the great you know physical innovations, the phone, the car, the computer and microchip etc, versus social progress, uh, women's suffrage, um, the uh, end of, of the separatist South, uh, voting rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, you know that kind of humanist sort of conflict, um, we we have a hard time it seems to me in America balancing our notions of technology as the, the mechanisms of progress and public policy uh, changes in, in human consciousness and political ideology as the mechanisms and when I looked at uh, the Space Needle, I, I developed the class when I was teaching in Seattle and that of course is the symbol of the city I'm sure people would recognize it instantly it's a it's a kind of a strange icon in a way because it's a whimsical uh, somewhat silly but I think nonetheless aesthetically beautiful um, sculpture in terms of architecture even when it was produced in 1962 as the centerpiece of the World's Fair it was already kind of nostalgic and innocent it represented an American and, and predominantly white view of a technological utopia, a sort of Jetsons space age of, you know, personal back, you know, uh, jetpacks and backyard heliports and uh, everything would be push button and all our problems would be solved. And so I started looking at the, the World's Fair of 1962 with its theme of progress as a kind of text the, the, the significant architecture still survives, but there's all of the original communications surrounding the fair. And it's very, very interesting to read as a three-dimensional uh, text on the vision of the future of that period, because it, it has nothing to do with the social issues that we face today. Um, it's, it's a very uh, white, Jetsons-y sort of vision that's almost uh, ama- well it's amazing for its innocence and its lack of wokeness in a sense right. and yet it's absolute rabid commitment to, to technology as being the solution and as if you know if the technical solutions are there they're going to just naturally be equitably dispersed or accessed and we know that's not true um, so I think, and one way to think of this, if for, for people who are familiar with William Gibson, who um, achieved a great deal of fame with his first book, Neuromancer, uh, quite an amazing look at uh, virtual reality and, and a kind of Blade Runner world. He was very influenced by, uh, by the movie Blade Runner. He hadn't, I don't believe he'd read any Philip K. Dick actually at the time. Uh, but he wrote a, a, a short story, which is in the, the book Burning Chrome, called The Gernsbach Continuum. And uh, Gernsbach was, of course, the name of a famous editor in the science fiction field. And the, the story is really a more of an essay, a cultural studies essay, than it is a, a short story proper. But it's a look, a projection into the future of what the world, and particularly American society, would be like if, in a sense, the world of the space needle had permeated reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very interesting thing for for readers uh, to look at. So what do you think about this underlying thesis of mine, that we have a conflict rather than a collaborative, cooperative effort? between the idea of technological progress and social progress? Let's just look at that thesis to start with.
0: What's, what's your view of that? Huh. That is a very interesting question. I think that, so there are two ways. Okay, so I'll play devil's advocate to begin with. And you could say that people who are of a lower income now have access to things like uh, food, for example. We have a lot of agricultural production that's technologically advanced, and that allows people to have food on their plates. Well, the issue with that is what kind of food are we talking about here? Now, the, the, the trash that we eat is better than no food although that gets troubled as well doesn't it because i'm not really sure that 3 meals a day of mcdonald's is really uh, is better than not eating at all for a day so you could also say that when it comes to i'm sure to...
1: <laughs> i'm sure it's not i think you're yeah. onto something here let it roll so
0: and then you could say that there are social justice movements particularly the arab spring that were helped along by social media twitter in particular by hashtags and the it's the ever present college age uh, question of of raising awareness if we raise awareness for something does it does it go away but the arab spring was not very successful and i would argue in our recent past you know the 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 blm protests slash riots of the summer of 2020 I think those were very well popularized by social media there were people out with cameras who were you know sort of filming the police engaged in all these gross abuses of power and nothing is really different in April of 2021 as far as I can tell the system is still very much in place so I wonder if Technology presents a, a kind of dangerous pit that you can fall into if you are inclined to think of it as uh, a, a progressive tool, right? You think that you're doing something and the powers that be allow you to uh, sort of fight with other people with no power in this gladiatorial arena while they continue about their, their business completely unabated. And then when it comes to things like food production, I mean, you know, so we have these, this technological progress when it comes to progress, rather, when it comes to, you know, the ability to harvest a lot of wheat, but there are very smart people who feel like civilization took a really bad turn and they pinpoint it directly at the invention of agriculture, right? The yes, movement indeed. away I'm from one of them. yeah, I would I would be right there with you as well. The movement away from a tribal society in which, um, not to say that these were the the sort of the pinnacle of of gender fluidity or anything like that, but societies in which every member of a tribe traded jobs and had a kind of um, an understanding of their role within a small group uh, where they were able to hunt wild game that was raised on grass that was untouched by pesticides um, and live to be relatively old. You know, it's a big myth that we have that, uh, that people just, you know, were dying in mass before the invention of, of modern medicine, for example, the difference is uh, obviously in childbirth. That The childbirth statistics skewed the average age of death down into the 30s, but that was just because so many children were dying. So we can say that we've made strides in um, the OBGYN area of science. That's that's a good. I would say that that is a good that comes along with a lot of bad, but that is is largely a good. But back to my original point, people people survived into their 80s and 90s In the past with no modern farming with no modern medicine um with with none of the things that we think of as technological progress so i think that there is a real tension and i think that rather than being an like an agent of social change i think it's an agent of i think that it is a distractionary measure I think that in almost every way possible that you could mean it. you know It's all meant to distract and poison and keep people keep people in their chains, essentially, but you think that you're out. You think you're, you think you're moving around and that you're free, but you're, you're really not.
1: I think that's really exactly what's happening. And, and I mean, one of the it, it's a beautiful thing is that you can say, well, equity would mean in part, uh, greater access to technology and, and technologically driven opportunity. But I think you could also say that true equity would mean the freedom to opt out of certain Perfect. programs. Perfect. And nobody has the means to do that. Getting off the grid, getting free of technology and and really we also mean by that capitalism as well mm-hmm. is very difficult for us all to achieve and so when this idea of I mean it's a little bit of the drug dealing model it's it's kind of the drug dealing and also uh, evangelism for from any religious point of view of get people hooked get people onto it and then they can't get out of it mm-hmm. and then you can always say well look you know, these things are really positive. They're really helpful. You know, Stephen Pinker wrote, uh, you know, a whole book just which broke, you know, just before COVID really came out about, you know, things are getting better all the time. Mm. <laughs> mm. And I, I I, sort of admire his uh, his optimism there. I'd like to share it. I unfortunately don't think of much of him. He's a CIA uh, operative. He's I, in the CIA. I have some real doubts about Dr. Pinker. Um but it, it really is interesting that we, we can think that the, the technological is going to bring us forward into a brave new world. And then every once in a while we think about brave new world in 1984 and we start to think, oh my God, we're already there and we're not liking it so much.
0: Exactly. And I want to go back real quick to your idea of opting out, because this has been something that's haunted me since I was 18 years old and told that I needed to go to college so that I could get a job and this and this and this. The system of capitalism that we have right now, or really anything, any system around the world, I'm pretty sure with a few exceptions, everybody has to quote unquote work for a living. So you have this system that is created that says that you need to make money so that you can survive Uh, and the way that you do that is by sacrificing most of your life doing something that you don't care about just really to live and it's so frustrating to not be allowed to say well i don't i don't want to do that i don't you know well we have this system where anybody can become rich well i don't want to be rich You know, like there's, there's no end game here for a person like me. And you see this a lot with, as you said, people who want to get off the grid. Um, It's very difficult. It also costs a lot of money. There are currently, um, you know, social issues and medical issues going on around the world right now where people are, you know, they, they're kind of being forced to opt in to, you know, medical procedures that they might not want to. And it's, it's kind of this whole thing where, you know, when, when do we draw a line and say, you know, Hey, just, just leave me be I'm, I'm good where I am.
1: Well, that gets back to something that we talked about last, you know, episode of, of a very, very simple, uh, and real life situation every day. You know, are you moving forward, in your life your personal life or are you going backwards heaven forbid or are you just standing still Mm -hmm. which that that doesn't sound very so we are already casting the the whole arc of life in terms of a red queen scenario essentially of having to run faster to stay in one place we can't just be still in one place because then people are going, well, you're you're static. Your life is just on hold. You know those kinds of things. You you have to have some kind of ambition. Uh, oftentimes, the only form of that that really is is socially valuable and and kind of relaxes people is is if you want more money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's something you can say to people, and they go, okay, I understand that. Right. Um, I mean, if you want more knowledge, if you want more sense of connection, I mean, people will nod along with that. But, uh, I mean, you, you certainly don't want to say, well, I want to create great art. Because a lot of people, you know, are going to go, oh, you know. And they'll smile at you, but they'll move down to the other end of the bar. Yeah, you know? kind of roll their
0: eyes. Get a load of this guy.
1: Yeah. So it's... Uh, it's a real problem that way, and I think that we need to be very alert to the issues that technological uh, progress, supposedly, uh, creates for us. And the fact that we're, we're at a point now where I, I'd, I'd suggest a lot of people feel like that's just out of their control, that they no longer have any way to to stay on the conveyor belt other than just, you know to be grateful they're they're managing to hold it all. Uh, and then there are a few people who think they're out leading the charge. Um, and they may be, you know, uh, they may be pioneering the singularity. Uh, but that doesn't really uh, solve a lot of the problems of the moment. And And just to get back to Seattle as the city, you know, that hosted the 62 World's Fair that event was all about civic boosterism it was an attempt to lure to the city which was still fairly undiscovered then um and just a basically beautiful regional center not really a city proper in a way uh there was concern that boeing was the only industry in town and that was that made everything vulnerable uh if boeing you know stock went down it was people getting laid off. So mm-hmm. the civic minded people then tried to really get some other technology involved and, and they were very successful. You know, eventually Microsoft would start there, Amazon. I mean I think we think of, of Seattle as, as kind of Silicon Valley North, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile meanwhile, it's impossible to visit that city today and not be aware of, of the, just the shocking and tragic level of homelessness and its attendant problems of, of open air mental illness, massive drug addiction, uh, a tremendous disparity in wealth. I mean, we have a very elite group of highly intellectual educated people um, with living a great lifestyle. And then we have people really, you know, Uh, pissing themselves in in pretty sad parks that have been taken over. And it it doesn't look like a progressive achievement to me when I think of Seattle. It -hmm. looks to me exactly like my thesis of the conflict between techno-utopia and a social-humanist utopia.
0: Mm -hmm. And when you mention people in parks, I've been thinking a lot about homelessness lately and reading up on it and finding out what causes it. A lot of the answers are not particularly interesting it's drug abuse Um, sometimes you get people who have fallen into just uh, you know a sequence of events that is highly improbable but has put a quote unquote regular normal person in those situations but a lot of it again it has to do with drugs but there's a third type of person who is homeless and i think that there is if you think of homelessness right as a spirit or a hyperstitional being and you think what does homelessness actually want? What is homelessness trying to express in in the broad you know way of thinking? There are people who are homeless who are directly rebuffing the idea of modernity, technology, things like living in a house. There's a a great film from a few years back and it's called Leave No Trace. And it's about a father and daughter you see that one? That was great. Uh, yes, yeah. good for you to mention that. Yeah, so Ben Ben Foster is the lead in that. He he's a great actor, and he plays a, a, Iraq War vet with PTSD who lives with his daughter, in Forest Park in Portland, Oregon, and the movie takes great care. It's actually a very it's a family friendly film, which is rare these days. I think it's PG or something like that. But he he takes great pains to make sure that his daughter has. For all intents and purposes a great life living with him in the woods and there are uh, it's it's a pretty heartbreaking movie because they get found by cps and they force him to uh, move into this house that they provide it's essentially showing a system that is doing its best to get this guy housed right but his PTSD won't let him. He can't be indoors, right? So he's torn between, you know, does he stay and care for his daughter or does he go and live out in the woods? The way that the only way that he feels comfortable in his own skin. So in the movie, you have, you know, these reasons for it. He has post-traumatic stress disorder. I mentioned earlier people who have drug addictions, right? People who have mental illnesses like schizophrenia, right? But all of that is to say that it, it feels to me like a psychic movement uh, that re- that's rejecting the norm, right? You see a lot of these pop-ups in different cities from Los Angeles to San Francisco. It's much more of a West Coast thing than an East Coast thing, now that I think about it. But you see perfectly um, uh, familied people, uh, usually young people. Sometimes they're a bit trust-fundy, other times not. But people who have decided to live in tent cities in parks, um, sometimes this ends in tragedy. There was a recent news story of a of a young, a promising young woman. I believe she was going to Harvard, who got involved in one of these tent cities and uh, unfortunately overdosed on fentanyl. So all of these warts aside, there, the tent city is both a symbol of capitalistic excess, this kind of brutal cutthroat system that leaves people behind. But looked at through another lens, if we give those people a little bit of agency, it's also, in my opinion, an act of rebellion, maybe, you know?
1: I I think that is an excellent, excellent humanist insight into this, and it ties into a couple of things that we've been talking about from the very beginning. I think it's one way to look at. Uh, it harkens back to the indigenous populations around the world who are resisting Western and Asian civilization, technology. You know, the the mediated world. Uh, they they don't want it. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't want it in New Guinea. They don't want it in Borneo. They don't want it in parts of South America. There are parts of Africa that are still resisting it. They they really want to. Do not be on that radar and it is an active rebellion um in the indonesian part of, of new guinea island i mean it, it's a very f- you know intense rebellion and it's it's hard to not have admiration for those people of course they probably ultimately will be overwhelmed because their habitat is filled with such incredible resources in terms of timber and minerals and uh you know The developed nations won't leave them alone. But uh, you have to admire that. And I think that is if we are going to to look at agency, which is really a sign of of basic respect, isn't it? That's kind of really Mm -hmm. what the idea Mm -hmm. of of giving someone credit for that is. The other thing that that I was thinking, it just crossed my mind as you were speaking, of the wonderful, uh, crude, but nonetheless beautifully expressive visual... Uh, art tradition of hobo signs, Mm -hmm. hobo signals. I think people might have checked that out. There was quite a great tradition of it. Of course, it goes back uh, particularly to the Great Depression years. Uh, But it's a whole hieroglyph symbol system that is, you know, someone's a good, good for a meal here, or, you know, vicious dog, you know, don't Mm -hmm. go here, you know, that kind of of communication left with these sort of interesting signs that were sort of hermetic, you know, magical symbols that only people in the know,
0: you Mm -hmm. know,
1: other hobos and part of that transient world could translate and understand. And I think that's very, very interesting to see what you know, the progressive idea now is that homelessness is an enormous embarrassment, particularly for cities like Seattle and Portland and L.A. and San Francisco that have been, you know, that think of themselves in very progressive terms and have been Democrat-led for decades. It's an embarrassment to sort of talk about the the homeless problem. And yet, if you looked at it the way you've just proposed, in in a kind of... Uh, and uh, you you didn't say this is the only th- part about it, and you didn't deny the, the the problems of mental illness and drug addiction. We're not heroicizing or romanticizing the problem. But there is a kind of nobility to it in the sense of resistance, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I, that's I, worth mentioning.
0: I think so, because I've seen so many memes that say something to the effect of we have a half a million homeless people in this country and we have 17 million empty homes. Why don't we solve the problem by putting these people in homes? Well, the problem is is that for, for the homeless uh, mother who emigrated up here from El Salvador with three children, she would take the home. I'm almost certain that she would take the home. But there are just as many people who are there almost voluntarily. What do you do with a population of people who don't wanna play? You know if people who have decided you know i actually i don't have to pay any bills i don't have any cares in the world you know i you know i can have sex easily i can take drugs i can pretty much do whatever i want and i can always stand on the corner for a few hours and net myself you know sometimes a couple hundred bucks depending on where you are you know why would why would i why would i start to play that game why would I go to a house where I will eventually somewhere along the line be expected to pay bills or have a family or it's, um, it's a bigger psychological problem than I think most uh, progressive people would like to, to recognize. And I think that, I think at the end of the day, the problem is so big that I feel comfortable saying that it's a problem with modernity itself, right? Where is, where are these people's safe, humane options to opt out
1: i think that's absolutely right and I'll, I'll give you an example of um kind of an intermediate example i i had to uh, i actually went and got my uh first vaccination i had to go to uh down boulder highway which mm-hmm. is um a kind of interesting artery in in las vegas it, it really takes you back in time every time i i go for a drive i feel like i'm hallucinating i just i i never see the same places twice it changes shape the way tangier did in, in william burroughs writing you know it's always mm-hmm. interdimensional and and the reality is just shifting um a street of mirages and broken dreams but so I'm driving down, and there's there are a lot of these lost in time RV parks. You know, people living in mobile homes. So they're not homeless, but it's not like a, a sterile suburb. You know, these people are not. Um, I mean, Jimmy Buffett, you know, said, I'm, "I'm so glad I don't live in a trailer." You know, mm-hmm. that's how we think mm-hmm. of, of of people like this. Not quite trailer trash. That might be a little bit harsh, but that's in the back of people's minds when. They drive past places like this. (laughs) So I'm driving past this one place that really looks like it's out of a movie. It's called the Duck Creek RV Park. And it's It's we're not talking RV in terms of people coming into town and moving on. This is not uh, well-heeled. Uh, gray-haired tourists with with money. These are people who live there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. These are dogs with with skin conditions. These are little plastic windmills. The, you know, there's a whole uh, ambience that goes with this place, and so I, the the sign was so big and garish and kind of you know tragically overgrown with, you know, by the waters of Babylon, sort of vines. You know, you could just imagine what what that will look like when. You know, the sand starts taking over and the zombies are coming out. So I'm having all these thoughts, right? And uh, I'm quietly realizing that, you know, I'm I'm without saying anything, because of course I'm you know, I'm I don't think of myself in these terms. I, I don't like to think that I was feeling superior to those people, but I realized that was what I was feeling. And so I thought, I'm gonna go check it out. So I circled back around and drove in, and just to have a look, you know, I was thinking, oh, maybe there'll be a shotgun blast while I come by, or, you know, maybe a cop car will pull up, or, you know, no. I pull in, and I see a whole bunch of neighbors hanging out, talking, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe drinking beers, but, you know, well, nothing wrong with that. It was a hot day. Yeah. For this time of year. <laughs> and... You know, I thought to myself, what do I want? Well, I want a sense of neighborhood and community, and I'm very grateful for what I do have in that regard. I like oral storytelling and sitting around shooting the breeze with people. Um, I think it's it's good for morale. It's good for the mind. And that's what these people had. It looked, it it actually looked kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So I, I drove out of there thinking, well, the people at the Duck Creek RV park have some wisdom about life, and certainly some humanist wisdom. They, mm-hmm. you know, they mm-hmm. weren't on their on their smartphones and, you know, doing virtual reality. They were doing uh, actual reality. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it just felt really good. The vibe was was cool.
0: I always felt that way when I would go downtown in El Paso. Uh, there were times when we would take bike rides uh, through Juarez and also through through El Paso. And there are some great neighborhoods down there, um, Chihuahuita, if I remember correctly, where there are these houses that have been there since the early 1900s. And they have the unfortunate distinction of being right on the border of Texas and Mexico. So it's this, um, I'm surprised nobody's ever shot a futuristic movie there because the contrasts are so striking but it's these cute quaint little one or two bedroom houses and then their backyards are now an enormous border fence right i'm talking you know <laughs> wow. 30 feet high three layers deep barbed wire electrified all this kind of stuff right and when you drive through those neighborhoods um it was very similar to your trailer park story lots of people sitting on their stoops drinking beers they would uh, kind of yell at us as they as they drove by. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what this one guy told us. He was he was telling us like the the name of his uh, of his group of friends. It was the something boys, but I can't recall it now. It would have added nice local flavor. But um, but when you see stuff like that, or the neighborhood that I live by, which has a lot of people with drug problems and drinking problems, it's the same deal, man. You can drive past these, you know section eight style houses and you always see the same thing you know the people largely don't don't work um but they're hanging out you know they're hanging out and i sometimes wonder because i feel superior too. how many times have i thought the words you know this crackhead you know riding his bike down my street you know crackhead It's such a nasty word um it's one of the nastiest actually it, co- it comes out of the mouth sounding very I don't know, Germanic and cruel, but um, but anyway. So you you know, I totally lost my train of thought there. But basically, the idea is that um, that these people have uh, a sense of community that I that I would actually like. I'm really tired of you know. I love the conversations that we have, and I love talking to my friends on the phone. But man, I just wanna I just wanna hang out around a fire with some friends, and I guess in my case, drink sparkling water but you know just <laughs> just hang out and shoot the breeze you know well i
1: think that you know this is you know the the real essence of of what should be the humanist sort of program is, yes, is just to right. appreciate that that ancient uh, i mean that really goes back to our hunter-gatherer roots so that pre-settling pre-agricultural society that pre-planning that whole you know, just a sense of system taking over. And I I think that one of the problems with the idea of progress, uh, particularly as we head into the cultural and social levels, is that it seems to take us further away from the states of being and interaction that we most desire. So how can that be progress? Um, right. I mean, I, if we have a, a view then that we, if we accept this conflict between technological progress and social progress, and we say that there is a pretty significant group of people falling through the cracks, or also trying to opt out as gracefully and, and with as much dignity and, and you know, potential for survival as they can, Without being part of that uh, it's very hard to sort of bring those two things together
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I wonder if that's a way to to look at um, our fourth mythic stream of progress, the cultural before we get down to the social level, I mean I think last episode we, we kind of suggested not promised that we were going to, to jump into uh, the social progress side and I think just what we've found is, we're not quite there yet, there there are a few more dots to connect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what if we, if, if we're sticking with this idea of technology versus the social, the social being the last one we're going to look at, in between is the cultural idea of progress. And when I think of that, I think of the great uh, revolutions. I think of the French Revolution, I think of the American Revolution. Uh, the Chinese Revolution, the Russian Revolution. There are obviously, you know, the revolutions go back, you know, to the beginning of history. But in in the context of modernity, uh, or or even, you know, the beginnings of that, I think those streams of revolution are, are very prominent. Do you see in any way how those are a bridge between what we mean by technology, capitalism, opportunity in that sense, and, and social freedom, the freedom to to maybe resist some of those things. Do you see that that might be a way of talking about the cultural idea of progress?
0: Yeah, I think the way that I perceive of cultural revolutions is actually, it's, it's based on technological innovation. So whenever there is a shift in technological paradigms, um, people start to get a little grumbly and I can't help but think that cultural revolutions aren't a way of the powers that be, um, fitting social revolution into their preferred technological paradigm. I just, very I f-
1: nicely put. I think that's excellent. Dave. That's a great way to, uh, to look at that. That was very, very clearly and simply stated, but I think there's a very deep idea in that. Um, Say a little bit more about the mechanisms for that, because I think that I'm, I'm guessing that you're not saying that is always necessarily a beautifully orchestrated and conscious uh, campaign mm-hmm. of transposing social uh, progress into a technological frame. But nonetheless, that is what happens. Correct.
0: Correct. Well, if you think about any time that there is a new technological revolution, whether that's something like the internet or um, f- the, the the factory farming or the locomotive, by its very nature, those systems are necessarily going to be controlled by the people who already have the money to 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 have them. Does that make sense so far? That that's I think yes. that goes without uh-huh. saying. Okay, so when you have one of these shifts, you have people who are already in place. They already have this kind of power. However, technology does tend to bring with it uh, people's need for social change. And I think that that directly flows from the perceived new freedom people get from the technology itself, right? So a locomotive allows people to travel great distances very fast, and that leads to an overall sense of well, if I can do this, why am I stuck where I am right now? The internet is the exact same way. When the Mm -hmm. internet comes along, all of a sudden people think, hey, I can communicate with somebody in China right now if I wanted to, or uh, I could have a Zoom meeting rather than than go into work, as we've all found out during this pandemic year. So people start to grumble, right? And people, they all have their particular bugbears and and things that bother them and so they they wrap up their general discomfort in whatever the flavor of ideology they like is at that moment but the general idea is hey there's this new thing that allows for greater movement greater freedom and ability to make my life easier so why why don't i move that so it's that it's that spirit of homelessness right creeping in mm-hmm. or freedom and saying hey come over here so now the technological Uh, sort of masters of the universe if you will are scrambling they're all of a sudden seeing people you know um, uh, demanding uh, you know 40-hour work weeks or demanding to work from home or demanding a raise in minimum wage and so they have to find a way out of that right and the way that they do it i think is again you know these are these are forces of nature not not backroom deals right But the way that they do it is through a kind of cultural revolution. And what a cultural revolution does is they find their sacrificial lambs and they offer them up to the people, right? They recognize the social problems of the day. They pay lip service to them, usually through technology. Uh, Today, we'd have something like representation, right? Where they're, they're saying, look, we're actually the good guys. But then they offer up this category of people that can be that can be sacrificed to sort of sate the the bloodlust right and the bloodlust comes right the sense of freedom leads to frustration and eventually the frustration forgets that the freedom ever existed and all they want is blood right so i think that the that the cultural uh revolutionary elements are are essentially like these big upheavals usually very violent um that are there to 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 let off steam to let everybody kind of fight amongst themselves they put the new ideology in place it doesn't matter because the technological masters have all of the money so they're insulated from all of this and they can they're chameleons you know they can adopt their image to whatever the people want to see and then uh and then people chug along until the next big invention messes everything up (laughs)
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's absolutely right. It makes me think of, you know, the old Roman idea of, of bread and circuses, you know, mm-hmm. as a way of, of distracting it, you know, and we have, you know, the opiate of the people is another sort of model, but, but you know, keep people hypnotized with essentially porn and violence and fast food or, you know, noise, so, social media noise, look at me, look at me dancing on TikTok, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's... It, in, in it's a very strange sense of, of really no progress at all in the sense of I often say that that you know we're still living in the mid 19th century mm. that uh, mass communications are still rising and that the introduction of them is was the first real singularity in a way where everything changed everything changed we, mm. we, it's very hard for us to get to the idea of, of the world that people like Emerson and Whitman and Melville were, and Thoreau were, were warning us about. And many other people, too. But, you know, you think about the prize fight and the beauty pageant. And, you know, these basic primal, the sideshow, the freak show, all these primal sort of entertainments, these crass, uh, co- you know, commercial entertainments for the masses, we're, we're still involved in that. They've just transposed to reality TV and streaming now. It's, it, it, it really is a way of, of kind of managing uh, any kind of real social change. But I wonder then if, if what you're saying about the cultural level of change, I wanna make sure I understand this, is that in addition to these big revolutions that, that we do kind of acknowledge as having historically happened, we're saying that A, they, let's not forget they were really violent uh, and mm-hmm. and make sure we're okay with that idea, but but also that in a sense they weren't real that they really didn't they didn't achieve the goals that they certainly claimed to is 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 that what your position
0: is? It would be. Um, I'm not super familiar with the French Revolution, but uh, the American Revolution, you know, continued the the British track of of imperialism, right? slavery the biggest crime that this country has ever committed uh followed directly after the or through the revolutionary war rather and um adam curtis in his latest documentary does a great job of showing just how little actually changed during mao's cultural revolution right so they're all uh, very bloody and yet toothless at the same time right a lot of people getting gummed to death i guess
1: I think that's a really good way to put it and and for people to really hear that of being very bloody and simultaneously toothless. And I think that one of the the interesting ways to kind of uh, begin to wrap this episode up and to to set up the next one where we really do look at uh, the social aspects of progress and the, uh, the identity politics and social justice issues of today is is to think about the American Revolution was a very, very progressive uh, idea of its time. And yet the results might not be mm-hmm. seen as progressive. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the problem of the idea of progress is that today's... Uh, subject of you know reform will be tomorrow's cause and need for reform. You know it, it's this kind of never-ending uh, cycle, and yet linear or not. And and we talked at the very beginning that the the, the strange paradox of progress being both linear and and circular. You know mm-hmm. circular cyclical. Um, and, and we can't seem to escape that, that problem, that predicament. Um, how should we feel about uh, the essentially violent nature of cultural revolutions, and maybe therefore then the idea of social progress, too? How do you reconcile the idea of progress... With violence Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. if well I don't I'm becoming more and more pacifistic as I get older I had a buddy who I who's a pacifist and this is uh, you know a while back when I didn't have his leanings necessarily and I remember telling asking him well what would you do if somebody broke into your house and he replied to me well I guess I would die if they wanted to kill me (laughs) and i thought I'm sorry that was laughing i know I, it is funny but i asked him an insane question and i got an insane answer right these insane hypotheticals that you give to people uh, will if they actually are principled they'll give you an insane answer right back so if you think and this is for the listeners if you think that violence doesn't come along with this kind of stuff i've noticed in my communities a noted rise over the past 4 years of uh, and these are from people who are all leftists. I have, you know very few friends who I would consider to be conservatives or, or what have you. And I, I think I need to remedy that to be honest with you, just to be on balance. But I've noticed a rise in talking about punching, stabbing, beating people who, who don't kind of follow these, these rules that were invented uh, a few years ago right my leftist friends from when i was in high school would be considered alt right right now right this is how fast these things happen okay and i think that i think that the that the violence of the uh, the kind of cultural revolution again it comes back to your question that i love so much from the beginning of the episode that we've returned to so often is how do you opt out right how do you opt out mm. of the violence of a cultural revolution how do you opt out uh, and, and this is gonna land like like a bomb for some people who think a certain way, but how do you opt out of participating in social progress, right? Not saying that you don't want good things to happen for marginalized people, but how do you opt out of the cycle, right? How do you, how do you not, not play? Um, Ursula K. Le Guin is famous for, for saying, you know, how you play is what you win, right? And if you play by the rules that are set by both a kind of uh, angry, bloodthirsty social mob and kind of brutal technocrats, um, you're going to get how you play. You're going to get the things that you might not want. That... I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I should probably stop because that's going to lead us into the social conversation. But that's those are my initial thoughts on it anyway.
1: Well, I think that's a good starting point. I, I there's, uh, we, we now have worked through things to a point where I think we can talk about what social progress, the progressive movement of our time that people would be familiar with and kind of maybe just so bombarded, you know, through the media, by that they really um, don't know what to think. I think we're we're ready to take that on board um, for next episode, and to, yeah. that will sort of circle around, connect across these other areas of of cultural progress, technological progress, biological ideas of progress, and our framework underneath it all, and overarching of of a religious approach to it, because. Um, and I don't mean religion in any specific sense, but I mean the deeper idea of, of religion and, and what mm-hmm. its functionalist purpose is in society. So, well, I think that's a, a pretty reasonable um, uh, place to, uh, to end. I, you know, I was thinking of maybe uh, someone called my attention to a meme that, that uh, is circulating now, which I think is a, a funny sort of counterpoint and maybe a good place to wind this episode up. Because although we talk a lot about uh, progress as a, as a culture, um, I think we're all really worried if that's in fact actually happening. And the meme shows a, a basic pizza box, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. which we've all, you know, every time I look out my window, some neighbor is getting a pizza delivered. It's just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. it just goes on and on and on but on the box there's a little sticker sign that says open box before eating and then the meme tagline is we're not going to make it are we you know and it's just a little bit so true isn't it I mean when you think about every day there's an Oh, Florida story you know mm-hmm. and only the problem is it's not just Florida where these things are happening I mean you wonder about the ideas of, of evolution and survival when you hear what some people are up to you just think oh no I mean we're not going to make it <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, and I, I think if we can keep our sense of humor and our sense of irony about that uh it's much better than falling into deep you know tiger traps of despair about Mm -hmm. it but it is i think a balance and and maybe a tonic to an overly idealistic notion of any kind of progress whether it's technological or social because uh you know let's not forget open up the box before you eat the pizza